Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Alongside life, liberty, and security, alongside the freedom to love who you want, live where you want, worship how and if you want, is your right to connect to the internet. Don't just take my word for it. Five years ago, the United Nations declared that internet access is a human right, which means simply that your very ability to be online is as fundamental as having a roof over your head. But just as with housing, which is a long history of inequity, our digital disparities run deep. It's something that the COVID-19 pandemic exposed even more starkly than before. The divide between the haves and the have-nots, the connected and the people still in the dark. Every lesson, every day that I teach has an element of technology. Every lesson. Yeah, I would say every lesson I've taught this year, my students have access to technology in my classroom. Shayla Ewing is a 29-year-old English teacher at Pekin High School in central Illinois. She's an alumnus of the school, but it's safe to say that a lot has changed since she was a student more than a decade ago. Wait, that's such a huge departure, Shayla, from when you were in school, when I was in school. Like when we were in school, sort of computer sciences was sort of a separate subject that you would do once a week, maybe. It wasn't something that was happening every lesson. Yeah, like you would learn to type or like go to typing classes or like learn Microsoft Office. Like that was a, a thing. That was a thing. I remember learning to type on my Atari and figuring out how to navigate an Apple Macintosh 2 all while accessing files saved on a 1.2 megabyte floppy disk. But fast forward to 2021 and things look pretty different for students. They're living in a world where tech isn't additive, it's essential. So for instance, now in my classroom, every student has a Chromebook. We have access to Wi-Fi across the building, which was not a thing when I was in high school, which I think is kind of a big deal. And for students who don't have Wi-Fi at home, the school provides hotspots so that they can use their Chromebooks to complete homework assignments. When the pandemic hit in March 2020, You'd think that Shayla's students would be in a pretty good position to be able to continue learning with minimal disruption. Just because all of her students had tech in hand didn't mean that they had the literacy to be able to handle the transition to online instruction. My students grew up with smartphones, but my students didn't grow up managing files on their smartphones. My students didn't grow up only communicating via video with a person who is an adult in an academic setting. So when we look at digital literacy, it is not just I can use a Google Doc, I can get to a website, I can log into something. It's all of those soft skills that students struggle with already 
and then leveling it up to a digital sphere. So if you think about the kid who comes into class and has a backpack and you open the backpack and they're like entire room, isn't it? And it's like papers that are shuffled. There's no folders and you have to like sit down and you take out all the papers and whatever items you find else that are have been stuffed in there, moldy sandwiches or whatever. And, and you unpack it and you help them organize. Now think about that same kid who has a Google Drive. And they have three months of learning in that Google Drive. And you can't sit next to them and help them organize and throw out all the things they don't need and help them find the things that they do need. So when we think about digital literacy, a lot of times it's thinking about skills that adults probably have already cultivated and have. So they might not get why someone younger than them who grew up with these devices and access to online communication might not understand. That digital literacy that Shada is talking about has the power to make or break a student's trajectory. It's literally the difference between success and failure, between thriving and just surviving. And teachers are on the front lines of ensuring digital literacy for the next generation. It goes back to like preparing for life skills, but also for future careers, um, professional growth. All of that's tied into there. All of this hit home for Shayla when she was helping one particular high achieving student to navigate learning during the pandemic. One of her brightest kids who was suddenly walking the tightrope between success and failure, all because of where she stood on this deeper aspect of the digital divide, the literacy factor. So this student, Shayla, she had access to a device. She had access to broadband internet. But there was still a problem for her that was related to technology. Yeah. A lot of people think that because my students are uh, digital natives, so they grew up with technology, that they are able to use it um, to leverage their learning, which isn't necessarily true. So for instance, I have a lot of students who the Chromebook they that we issued them here at school and the Wi-Fi hotspot they were given, that was the first internet and the first device they ever had in their homes. If you have no one with you to figure out the digital resource then you can give students five Chromebooks and give them the best internet in the world. That doesn't mean if those digital literacy skills aren't there, that learning can happen. That is where my students struggled primarily is that lack of support because in the classroom that happens really naturally, that self-isolation component along with you are now the leader of the digital instruction of other people, that is a lot to handle and a lot to navigate. Shayla, what you're describing sounds really complex and very stressful, not just for you as the teacher, but also for the student. Like It sounds like this student was really struggling. So in what ways did you have to go above and beyond to help her? I had to work a lot one-on-one with her self-funding of her scholarship. I had to help navigate where to find uh, the scholarship resources that she needed, help to research that process. 
reach out to other people in our school building who needed to be involved in that, such as like the a school counselor um, or other teachers for recommendations. And what Shayla is describing is more than just whether a kid passes or fails AP English. It's about whether or not they can get into college and build a brighter future. But there's only one Shayla, and there are many, many more kids. I just want to be really clear that I had, at the time, over 100 students, and I was not doing this with every student. I had to choose where my time could be spent and where my bandwidth could be spent to have the biggest impact. And because the student was engaging, and because the student was such a high-performing student who had worked so hard for so many years to achieve this college dream, that's where I had to put my energies. So there's a lot of students that I didn't engage with in this way and didn't succeed in the same way too. How did you choose? I mean, that sounds so challenging. I mean, what? how did you, how do you even do that? This is a morbid example, but we have training on what to happen if there's a school shooter. And part of that training is um, you go to the people who are most wounded or need the most medical attention first. And that was definitely my mindset during that time was who can I help the most? And then I can go to my other groups of students. I think that there is a myth of resources and access that if you have a student who comes from a low-income family and you give them um, a laptop and you give them internet, that that's all they need to be successful. And I think that is a really great focus that students need those things and they need those resources. But students need to learn how to use those resources well. Uh, I've never been ice skating before. So you could give me a pair of ice skates and you could give me a ice skating rink, like put me there. And I would fall on my face and become very frustrated and say, I don't want to ice skate anymore because you never taught me how. I can't do it. Caroline Modaresi-Tirani, and you're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we've been exploring how the COVID-19 pandemic is giving us space, and perhaps even the mandate, to rewrite the rules and redesign the foundations of how we live, work, and create. And nothing is as foundational to our futures as the digital revolution that's already well underway. So when we talk about a post-pandemic nation, we have to address this fundamental issue, this right and the tools necessary to exercise this right that is eluding so many Americans. Because when we talk today about infrastructure, we can't just talk about roads and bridges or tunnels and skyscrapers. We have to talk about education. But to permanently close this vast digital divide, we must first recognize its root cause. I'm grateful to the pandemic for only one thing, 
that finally America and the rest of the world got focused attention on connecting every person on this planet to this important platform. Um, but let's be honest, if we hadn't had the pandemic, I'd still be fighting and I'd still be a minority of people caring about this issue. Um, it would not have become a, a part of uh, national policy, but for this pandemic. That's Larry Irving, an internet legend who's credited for coining the phrase digital divide. He was one of the main architects of telecommunications policy in the Clinton White House, but his work started nearly a decade earlier in his hometown, New York. Tell me a little bit about how you first became interested in this thing that we call, or rather you called, the digital divide. I was born in a projects in Brooklyn, and and I remember both in Brooklyn and in Queens, New York, um, people who didn't have a telephone at home, people who would go down to the corner in order to make a phone call uh, to the grocery store, to the bar, because they didn't have a phone at home. I remember friends of the family coming into our home because we had a telephone. What most Americans don't realize is in the telephone age, um, African-Americans, Native Americans, Latinos were much less likely to have telephone service. And so work I did in the 1980s, working with the Congressional Black Caucus, Hispanic Caucus, to try to bring uh, low-income communities, particularly in inner cities, onto the telephone grid, led to my concern when the internet came, uh, came about, that the same problem we saw with telephones could emerge in the internet era. And just to give you a little bit of an understanding, in mid-80s, if you were Black or you were Latino, although we had 92% of all Americans were on the telephone network, that number was about four and five for Black Americans, and a little bit below four and um, four and five for Latino Americans. So we developed some policies in the 1980s to bring Blacks and Latinos, particularly in the inner cities, onto the telephone network. Those systemic challenges underwriting telephone connectivity were exacerbated when the internet came around. If you were suburban, if you were affluent, if you used technology at work, if your kids had technology at school, you were likely to have that technology at home. If you were low income, if you were rural, if you were inner city, if you were black or brown, if you were a single parent, if you were less educated, you were not very likely to have the internet at home. But the thing we also knew was that the internet was going to be a huge commercial, educational, and healthcare um, determinant. That those folks who had access to the internet over time would be more employable, would have better educational outcomes, would be able to do things like telehealth that we take for granted today. And so we wanted to kind of begin to equalize um, access to those technologies early in the process, as opposed to waiting till we got to the point where 50 years after the telephone, we had those kinds of gaps. In the 90s, Larry worked for the Clinton administration. And that's when he first confronted the digital divide head on. And we went to this junior high school in, in Cupertino, and all these kids had uh, an iMac sitting in front of them, a, a 19, uh, 90s era Apple computer. So there's like eight kids to a table, four tables, and each of the kids had their own little personal iMac, and they were networked iMacs. And I was like, that's impressive. That's pretty cool. Later that day, we drove up to Hunter's Point, which is a low-income community, predominantly black and Latino. And the only technology in that school was a metal detector to keep the kids from bringing guns and knives into the schools. They had no idea a computer existed, much less the internet. Wow. And at that point, we realized we needed to figure out who was on the internet, who wasn't on the internet. Larry knew that connectivity was a huge priority for both President Clinton and Vice President Al Gore. So he set to work crafting policy to try and make access universal for all Americans, a policy that came about with the landmark 1996 Telecommunications Act. So the, the 1996 Telecommunications Act was basically geared toward creating more competition 
um, among the cable companies, the telephone companies, the satellite companies, in video, audio, and to help spur more investment in our nation's telecommunications infrastructure. It succeeded in a lot of levels, it failed on a lot of levels, but one of the things it did succeed in was one of the programs in that was called the E-rate. The E-rate was essentially money that could go toward bridging the tech divide and getting more young people online. What the E-rate did was it gave funding to rural and low-income schools to connect those schools to libraries. Part of our promise to connect every school, every library, every rural health clinic, we cr- helped create the E-rate. And you know, we amended the 1993-94 Clinton-Gore edict to connect every school to by 1999-2000, we were saying connect every classroom. It helped spark a global interest. All of us across the planet at the same time realized that public institutions at a minimum had to be connected to the internet. And the E-rate made sure that consumers had access to those technologies. I can't tell you how many millions of Americans had their first internet experience at a library and then said, I need this at home. But if we hadn't put it in the library, they never would have had that first experience. The E-rate program still exists today. And for Larry, it's still personal. It is still very important. I'm on the board of a company that uh, does E-rate work in in Baltimore, uh, in Tennessee, in um, Indiana. So, you know, um, I'm still excited about the ability to use public funds to help get people connected. And I'm very excited about getting schools connected because, you know, I'm a product of public schools. My life doesn't happen but for public schools and public libraries. You don't get a kid from the projects getting to be an advisor to the president before he's 40 years old if there's not a lot of public investment. And so if I can help that next kid, whether he or she's from Brownsville, Texas, or Pikesville, Kentucky, or Barrow, Alaska, I want that kid to have access that he or she needs to get the educational tools they need. But as technology evolves, the goalposts move. Over the past two decades, it was no longer enough that every school was connected. It had to be every classroom, then every student, and now every student's home. Affluent school districts and students from wealthier families, they can keep up. But millions of students, predominantly from rural, Black, Latinx and Native American communities, they can't. And thus the digital divide grows. When I was talking about digital divide in the 1990s, it was just kind of like, you know, AOL, kind of, you know, that stupid modem with all the crazy sounds we're making, just giving people access to basic internet. Now it's broadband. Now it's wireless. Now it's gig networks. As technology evolves, we have to continue to evolve our definition of what is the minimal amount of connectivity people should have access to. And telling a kid that you have a cell phone, so you're done, in an era where another kid has a MacBook or a Chromebook and has a broadband network, it's just, it's just wrong. It's a fundamentally wrong approach to the problem. It's these haves and have-nots that Larry and other experts agree has led to something called the homework gap. The homework gap are, are those kids who, who are given homework by a teacher in school and then can't do it at home because they don't have access to technology to do it. They don't have broadband, they don't have a laptop, or they don't have both. And there are far too many kids who just don't have basic broadband connectivity, and then they often don't have the computing device or the uh, connection device that they need. In 2009, the FCC's Broadband Task Force reported that approximately 70% of teachers assign homework that requires access to broadband. But for the roughly 5 million households with school-aged children that don't have high-speed internet at home, Kids spend on average two additional hours to complete their homework. A lot of those kids in the projects don't have any internet access at home. Maybe mom has a cell phone or dad has a phone, but you know they're not going to have access to that phone. 
and they shouldn't and, and shouldn't be expected to do their homework on that phone. What kid two or three years from now is going to have better educational outcomes? The kid on my block who's got a gig network and a laptop and he gets his, to his home or the young girl who goes home to the projects who doesn't have that access. It's, and, and we're not talking about small numbers. We're talking about millions of children who have that reality. Despite increased federal, state and local funding efforts, data indicates an overwhelming majority of those students who didn't have adequate access prior to the pandemic are still not connected. But due to the spotlight the pandemic has put onto the issue, we have the opportunity for fundamental change. A change that could see the right to connect enshrined in American life in a way that Larry has imagined since the dawn of the web. Everybody wanted to talk about the digital divide um, last year when the pandemic started. And, and I think there'll be one lasting image. Every time I think about that picture of those two young Latina girls sitting outside of a Taco Bell so they, with their laptops in their laps so they could get, use the Taco Bell's free internet so they could get classroom service, if that didn't touch your heart, you don't have one. I mean, no child should be deprived of education because they don't have access to the internet. None. And I think all of us saw that photo, and I think that, more than anything we could have done, helped drive this dialogue about connecting every school child to the internet. I think the pandemic was a shot in the arm for us, and it really served as an accelerant to a set of changes that were in progress, but now they got a booster shot. That has been very positive because people have become awakened to the value that can come from technology that that maybe were hesitant before. The amount of innovation that happened across the board during the pandemic to bring things online and the way many uh, those who are connected have changed their their ways of life and their patterns to be online uh, in ways that will not go back uh in the future and will only probably continue to increase only means that the consequences of not being online grow. Jay Puckett and Hannah Hill spend a lot of time thinking about this issue at BCG, where Jay used to oversee the firm's education, employment and welfare sector, and Hannah focuses largely on education. Their research has underscored how eliminating the digital divide is more than just a question of education and equity. It's acknowledging that as technology advances, the communities that we're already leaving behind will be worse off than they are now. It was not until the pandemic when school shut down for students specifically, uh, and you suddenly realized that 30% of people in your classroom did not have access to the technology at home needed to learn. And so when you're faced with trying to provide a basic service or go through your day-to-day working at home and suddenly you can't, it creates a lot more visibility to an issue. than it had been before. In March 2020, this visibility inspired immediate action on federal, state and local levels to quickly get students online. Schools raced to hand out computers, mobile devices and hotspots. As an example, we we did some work in Texas in support of an effort called Operation Connectivity where we realized that 17% of the households in Texas didn't have access to reliable broadband at speed and and 30% didn't have access to either a laptop or a tablet. And within a matter of months, using uh, some of the federal relief dollars that came through, the 
public officials in Texas were able to order, you know, over 700,000 devices and just under 500,000 hotspots and get those deployed and into people's hands very quickly to stem learning loss and to provide short-term access. While programs like these were successful, they were seen mostly as short-term solutions to a much, much bigger problem. In many ways, those were Band-Aid solutions to a more systemic problem around closing the digital divide that require fixed broadband solutions over time to be in place and more permanent solutions around device access. And Hannah's looked at the data around this. There was 15 million students at the beginning of the pandemic who did not have access. Uh, And based on the work of the schools and the libraries and uh, local communities to close the digital divide, we found that about 3 million students got access, although 12 million students remained without access. And of the 3 million that got access, we found that most of their solutions, 75%, were short-term solutions that would expire in the next one to three years. So three years down the line, which at this point we're one one year into those three years, we expect that there's still going to be close to 15 million students who need a solution. To permanently close the divide, Jay and Hannah say that we must first recognize the barriers that stand in the way. There are three key barriers to the digital divide. The first is around the availability of the infrastructure. So that is, do you have the lines going to people's houses so that they can connect to the internet? Or do they have the cell coverage in their area so that they can connect to the internet? Um, and are they can they get the physical devices of a laptop or a tablet? Which was a real question during the pandemic when there were supply chain shortages. The second is around affordability. So if the infrastructure is there, can they pay for it? Can they afford the upfront costs of getting online or of buying a device, as well as any monthly costs of uh, the service each month of paying for repairs on your device? And the third is around adoption, which is in some ways umbrella for do they understand how to get online, have the information they need, the trust of it, and and the digital literacy as well to understand what is this device? How do I turn it on? What does it mean to have the right cybersecurity and privacy things on my computer so that I'm not at risk of being hacked now that I'm online? Um, And do I understand how to navigate email and Excel or Word documents so I can actually make use of this device that I have. That bit about the using the tools, you know, that sort of like adoptability, essentially, like, do you feel like that's almost the most elusive piece in this puzzle at the moment? Well, you can, you can always, you know, turn the dirt and take the fiber to the curve without changing anything that somebody does, right? You can put in place a program to help someone afford it, but if if somebody doesn't have the fundamental awareness of how critical it is for their own ability to reach their dreams, right, and to become economically self-sustaining uh, as an individual, that's a bigger lift, right? Because you you it's a it's a major education and change management process to bring people along to understand why this is so essential to them. Uh, and and that um, I think that is a big challenge for us. And whose responsibility is it to actually close the digital divide? 
I would put the onus on all of us um, as both individuals and a society and businesses. Uh, I think that if we look at the digital divide, we all play a part in closing it. Uh, you need the government to put the funding and the resources around the solutions to make it happen. Uh, you need the private sector to, to stand up and specifically the internet service providers and making sure that there is service in all the areas uh, and that it's affordable for people and that they're explaining the digital literacy and the resources needed for people to get online. You need schools to be including digital literacy as part of education, uh, and you need community organizations who can really be on the ground and really hold people's hands and walk them through and get them online. And then you need individuals to be able to say, this is important, and I understand why this is important, and I can see how this brings value to my day-to-day -day life in order to really have everyone connected. Where the public sector is most visibly stepping up is in the form of the mammoth trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. The law commits around $42 billion to deploy broadband where it doesn't yet exist, and a further $14 billion to an affordable connectivity fund targeting low-income households. It also establishes new grant programs to help support states and local governments and nonprofits to help train residents on digital literacy, something that Jay and Hannah say is key to bridging the divide. I think investment in infrastructure is a key thing for, for our society. I, I do believe that we need to keep our physical infrastructure current and competitive. You know, I am hopeful that with the infusion of funds that we're going to be able to use that to help bridge that digital divide. I think what's really promising about this bill is that it has pockets of funding um, that can be used for each of the three root causes of availability, affordability, and adoption. Um, although there's still much to be done uh, to make sure that that money can be spent well and that states can deploy it and that there is the resources back to the talent, but there are the people, the engineers, the actual fiber and cable uh, so, and the supply chain to make sure that we can use these dollars well. For the amount of money that is in the infrastructure bill, is the infrastructure bill alone enough to actually close the digital divide? The biggest outstanding question is just getting it spent well. Um, and that will really put the onus on states who are getting the the bulk of the funding to put together plans to build coalitions of stakeholders locally and different organizations who can support um, and, and making sure that the private sector is ready uh to be partners and to to build out where it needs it um, and to be able to understand like, where are the areas that have access and where don't um, and what are the solutions that are the best and most effective um, and strongest long-term solutions to close the digital divide. Yeah, I mean, who stands to benefit the most, I guess, from the closure of the digital divide? Is it the private sector? Is it federal and state governments? I think it's everyone. Um, I think that there's, and the reason that the public sector invested in the digital divide is that I think there's a lot of benefits that uniquely accrue to the public sector by having the digital divide closed um, because there are benefits in terms of lower social services costs and lower healthcare costs and increased taxes. Um, but private sector actors would not invest in this if there were not benefits to them. Like that is how our private sector works. And you have seen our private sector stand up. And yes, it is because it is for good of society and they they care about that too. But it's also because there is benefits to them to, to being part of the solution. 
But as we learned from high school teacher Shayla Ewing at the start of this story, putting a device in a student's hand isn't enough if they don't know how to use it. I think you're absolutely right. Just having the tool without sufficient instruction on how to get the most out of the tool is insufficient. And so it's an imperative for us to evolve the way that we access new opportunities for students to learn how to use technology and how to get the most out of that technology. I'm someone who does my job on the computer all day long, but I had to get onto a new email the other day and I was like, I don't know how to do this. This is new. I don't feel like I can figure it out on my own or I'm afraid I'm going to mess things up. And I reached out to my IT department. Um, and that is for someone who uses the, the computer on an everyday basis. And so you think about people where this is a new device and that is just more amplified. It's creating that one-on-one -on -one connection who can help people navigate the systems to answer the questions, to be able to give them the assurance that they're not going to break it or to do something wrong um, as they go through the process of getting online. Uh, and I think that that can happen in a variety of ways. We see it at a really local level happening at grocery stores. You can see it happening often at libraries where people are already going to learn to search, to ask the librarians questions. You can see it in schools. You can see it with local community organizations or faith-based organizations that already speak the language. Um, and I mean that both in terms of like English versus another language, but also any of the community dialect to understand really what are the the fears or the questions of that community and support them as they go through this. Um, it is not a one-time journey to get online, but really it's creating those touch points so that you can keep building your skills online. It's a moment in time for us right now to uh, make the appropriate investments uh, in, in closing this digital divide, uh, making the technology available, affordable, and understood and then educating people on how to use it uh, to its fullest extent. And I think that there's a social imperative and there's an economic imperative that we all face to close that digital divide. Yeah, so she is a sophomore this year at her university, um, at her first choice university. That's Shayla Ewing again. She's telling me about her student the one who struggled to transition to online learning, the one whose grades fell and whose confidence fell. So she got into college. She did, she did, in um, several colleges, actually. And she self-funded her first year of school and is still self-funding her second year. And one of the scholarship essays um, that she wrote uh, was actually one of the most prestigious scholarships at her university. I was able to present her with that scholarship. So I got to go to her home in like a front yard, you know, COVID safe, masked greeting. I got to present her with this local scholarship from our school. And I remember her father cried. Um, I had helped her achieve her dream, but I helped him achieve his dream for her, which made me feel good. I remember feeling just relief. Like I had this task that I had tasked myself with and this goal of helping this person. And I was able like in that moment to help them. Relief and hope and pride in 
what my student was able to achieve when she didn't always think she could achieve it. This has to go beyond the pandemic. Something this fundamental, that is considered a human right by the United Nations, should be a consecrated right for every American, every child. We need to build a bridge across the divide and then be prepared, like Shayla, to help people across it. So what is your hope when we're sort of beyond the point of urgent and beyond the point of panic when it comes to setting up the next generation well? I know that when I was done triaging, triage teaching, which is what I would call 2020 teaching, and the dust kind of settles and I see what worked and what I was able to achieve to go to those things and go to those innovations, to keep innovating from there and to keep thinking about how I can get access to my students, not just access of resource, but access of knowledge and skill and to keep that the focus of education initiatives. Because this goes beyond just technology, but resources of texts with different perspectives, resources of facilities at school that are comparative to wealthier populations, resources of education for teachers so that they can continue to keep innovating and continue to feel like they have the knowledge to do so. So that's that'd be my hope. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. In our next episode, we'll look at America's supply chain and how it's impacting everything from the tiniest cogs in our bicycles to our national security and global trade.